Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. Thanks so much for checking us out. At Echo, we are all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And today, we'll be studying the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the historic account of how the apostles received power from Jesus and then carried the truth of the gospel to the entire world. In its pages, Luke details God's brilliant and timeless strategy for re-establishing his kingdom in the world. It's quite simple. Jesus will supply power to his witnesses for telling people everywhere about him. Here's Pastor Phil Nauer. We're going to be uh, part eight of Acts today. We're going to be in chapter four, right, Mandy? Yes. <laughs> Mandy Hayden is coming. She is our reader this morning. She's going to read to us this passage. Mandy, here's why you need to be extra appreciative. How many versions of a space plan are you through now trying to make this fit into this? 13. She's a professional space planner, and she is amazing. She uh, is currently overseeing about 2 million square feet of, uh, of uh, it's the N National, National Cancer. I knew there was an, an acronym, and I wasn't going to remember it all. Um, but she has been giving her skills to this church to help us figure out how to fit the maximum amount of ministry space into an ever-changing box with ever-changing restrictions. And she's been through 13 versions so far to try and make this work for us. All of them are amazing, but every time you want to move a sink or a this or a that or a landlord says you can't touch this wall or that wall for us to sign an agreement, she's been burning the midnight oil for us to really find out if this is God's best for us. She's going to come to read this morning. Will you, will you show your appreciation to Mandy for all that she's invested in this project? Mm -hmm. Good morning, Echo family. Um, we are reading Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 22, which looks longer on this piece of paper than it does in my Bible, but we're going to go for it. Um, at least we only have a few big names here, but um, in Acts chapter 4, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people through Jesus that there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The next day, the council of all the rulers and the elders and the teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded... By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There in salvation in no one else, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw boldness of John and Peter 
for they could see that they were no or, that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus but since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there in front of them there was nothing the council could say so they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves what should we do with these men they asked each other we can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for the miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. That's a great, it's a great story for Luke to include. I, at first when I'm reading through this, hopefully this will relieve you, I couldn't relate to what it's like to be arrested, um, thrown in jail. Uh, that's not part of my story. What made this morning really interesting, I'm sure, for you. But uh, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm also not going to ask you to raise your hands. Now, how many of you have been arrested before? Let's see a show of hands. Um, that would also be a, an interesting way to start the service, but we're not going to go there today. Um, so, you know, when you're reading through this, sometimes there's parts of the Bible and you read it and you're like, oh, this applies to me. I read myself right into this story. This is right where I'm at. And then there's other times you read the Bible and you're saying, what in the world does this have to do with me? Like those passages in the Old Testament where a prophet prays and bears come out and maul a whole bunch of children. And you're like, why is this in here? I don't relate to this story. I don't want to see this happen to children. Here's a story about believers who are doing a good thing and it blows up in their face. You know, they end up thrown in jail the first time we see this happen to someone other than Jesus, right? Um, we see believers arrested unfairly, without a warrant, thrown into jail without knowing their charges. Um, now we can start to bring more contemporary application to it. But um, I'm just going to try to pull uh, a couple statements out of this narrative, out of this story, out of this history that Luke records to help make some application for us because there's a couple sections, a couple scenes in this story that if we just look at each scene individually, I think there's an overarching narrative that we can pull out, make some sense out of it today. I don't know if you were listening to Zach's prayer when Pastor Zach prayed a few minutes ago. He said, you know, I pray for the speaker that we can at least get a couple nuggets, maybe even something out of the whole sermon this morning. So I appreciate the confidence he has in me as he left. You know, I hope they get a nugget out of what he says too, maybe even the whole thing. But, um, but knowing attention spans as they are and also knowing what our time constraints are today and always being gently reminded by our, our preschool and our nursery team at what our, you know, our, our cutoff time is, I'm going to give you all of the points up front so that if any point I can just look at the clock here and see that I need to land, you'll at least have the statement that I pulled out and where I took it from. And you can make that into a Bible study as we can go back and just read those particular verses and see what that statement is and match it up and take some meaning from it. So here are five takeaways that I have 
um, from Peter and John's arrest and almost said irrigation. That would be a whole different story. You know, they got arrested and then they just swamped them with water for an hour, um, which I was going to make a comment about something. I won't. Um, Five takeaways. These are not the five takeaways because you might read them and be like, I have 10 takeaways and they're none of yours. Good for you. Fantastic. You're a scholar. Gold star for you. Um, Here's five that I got. Um, Number one, don't expect every godly decision you make to pay off immediately. Follow God boldly and trust the results to him. Okay, that's the first thing I see, verses one through three. And we're going to go through this in a second. The apostles made a bunch of decisions at 2.45 in the afternoon that landed them in jail by six. (laughs) They were not planning to end up in jail. They didn't think, you know what I'd like to do? By 6 o'clock, let's make sure we're in jail overnight. But they made one innocent decision that snowballed into four other decisions that landed them in jail. We're going to look at that. And I just want to suggest to you, don't expect every time you make a wise, blessable decision that there's going to be immediate positive payoff for you. Live obediently and boldly anyway and trust the results up to God. Point number two, second takeaway I got. How are they able to be cool under fire? They knew that God is always working on a bigger picture than what you can see today. We live in a world right now that lives by snapshots, selfies, social media. We take a picture of when our makeup is done right and when the kids are happy and when everybody's smiling and we put that out there for everybody to see and we say, this is my life, this is the snapshot, this is what it looks like at this moment. Understand that life is snapshots, but there's a bigger picture that God's working on that's bigger than your snapshot. And your snapshot right now might be a little gloomy. I might not be really happy. But if you understand that's just fitting into a bigger picture that God's doing, you can respond under pressure and in disappointment like the apostles did. Number three, the Holy Spirit can transform you into someone more powerful than you are in your native capabilities. You see a, a different Peter in this story than we did months earlier. You see a guy who is by all intents and purposes, he's many things but brave is not one of them. He has an epic history of failure when the pressure was on. And yet he is a prime candidate to be cool under pressure, under hostile cross-examination. What changed this man over the course of a couple months from a guy that fled and denied Jesus when pressured by a few individuals to being able to sit in the middle of a circle of 71 hostile interrogators and preach the gospel without hesitation and without breaking a sweat? There's a secret, and Luke gives it to us. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can transform you into somebody that you never could be, no matter how hard you worked at it. Number four, persecution, and we don't want to misdiagnose. Have you ever been misdiagnosed before? They said something was wrong with you, and it wasn't that. It was something else. We want to be careful with this word. We don't want to be casual with this word. But persecution is a satanic strategy that's designed to accomplish two things. Stopping the gospel from being spoken and or forcing Christians to renounce their faith. That's what persecution is. It's different from a challenge, a trial, a struggle, a bad day, a self-inflicted wound. It's different, but it's specific, it's satanic, and has specific outcomes in mind. And number five, last takeaway from the last part, think verses 19 through 22. You cannot live for without also living against anything. Wear a Yankees jersey to an Orioles game. You're making a statement for and against. 
You cannot be pro without being anti. And when you make a decision to live for Christ, you are also making a decision to live against the system of the world. When you make a decision to enter into, by God's invitation, His kingdom under His government with His laws, there will be at times it will put you in direct tension to the laws of the kingdom of the world. And in those moments, you must make a decision under whose kingdom you will bow your knee and submit to. You cannot live for without also living against. The apostles show us this. When they say we live in a different kingdom and you're asking us to disobey our king and if we're faced with the choice between honoring our king and honoring you the king, if it's mutually exclusive, we choose standing for him and against you. So those are the five takeaways. So whether I get to unpack them any further or not, at least you have them there in note form. Let's go way back to the, to the first point. Verses 1 through 3, don't expect every godly decision to pay off immediately. In other words, for payoff is results. We live in a results-based world. Probably where you work, there are certain results that they're measuring all the time. And that's where they determine whether you're doing a good job or a bad job. A lot of the things we do, we're motivated by the payoff it promises. Why else would people get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and go stand on a machine to make their heart increase while they pedal or ellipticize or whatever verb that goes with that machine? Why do people get up early and work out? Because we're promised that if we do, we'll look like that person at the beach, right? Our clothes will fit better. We like how we look. We don't do it. Well, a few sickos do it because it's fun. I think they're lying. We're doing it because it offers us the payoff. And after the first day or your most recent first day hopping on the machine or going to the gym and you overdo it, how do you feel the next day? Horrible if you overdid it. Your legs hurt. Your arms hurt. Your face hurts. It all hurts. And you try to squeeze yourself into the swimsuit and look in the mirror and the results are not there. I wonder, this would be a really interesting conversation we cannot have today. I wonder what you expect Jesus to give you in the payoff. I wonder what you personally feel like you should be getting out of following Jesus. That would be, I don't mean the correct Sunday school answer. I mean what you really think. That would be very interesting to know what is it that you're expecting Jesus to supply to you uniquely as you go along in this journey. The answer to, I wonder if you've ever even really thought about it. Because I seem to run into a lot of miserable Christians these days. Which I don't understand how that works. Just miserable. And if you talk to them long enough, you could probably get them to the point where you could pin them down there saying, I expect this out of life through God. And I'm a Christian, and because I'm a Christian, I should expect that as a Christian, what I expect out of life should be supplied to me because I'm on the basis of my Christianity. And I'm not getting it. Whatever it is. Wealth, satisfaction, fulfillment, forgiveness from people. Smooth sailing, no crises, all your appliances working indefinitely. Your car never breaking down. More money than you know what to do with. Unexpected checks in the mail. Success in dating. You know, your husband who is hairless grows hair. I don't know, whatever it is you're expecting. And you're not getting it. 
I would say most of you consciously or probably more of us subconsciously have some level of expectation that this is what I should be getting out of my relationship with God. The payoff for all my effort. And a lot of times when we make, when we have a choice to do something wise and blessable, godly, okay, wise and blessable, or doing something unwise, maybe not blessable, something questionable, something more selfish, and we make the godly decision, we expect it's going to result in some type of immediate payoff. Well, I did make a sacrificial commitment to the vision fund, and so God's going to give that back to me triple. But it hasn't happened yet, and now I regret doing it. A good way to figure out if you live this way is whenever something bad happens to you, do you assume it was the direct result of a bad decision you made? If that's the case, you live with this idea that God is your landlord, and he hands out rewards or blessings in, a, in real time, and, and that's only the, the only explanation for why things happen to you, and he hands things out real time whether or not you pay the rent. Or you say, you know, or, or your assumption is, I must not have paid the rent, so God's not taking care of me. Or, I paid the rent, therefore God is taking care of me. Both of those are unhealthy extremes. What I want to tell you is not every good decision immediately pays off with warm fuzzies. Sometimes doing the right thing doesn't mean people are going to stand up and applaud and slap you on the back and say, that was such a godly decision you made. Here is wealth and friendship and love for you. Sometimes doing the right thing will land you in jail. Why did the apostles not crumble when they were thrown in jail? They were looking for a different payoff than most of us were. They understood something that we don't understand. How did they land in jail? Well, the story starts earlier at 2.45. They leave wherever they were, and they head to the temple because at 3 o'clock every day it was prayer time. So they leave in time to get there early, like many of you were here earlier today. And some of you even said, did you notice that I'm here early? I said, yes, gold stars for all of you. Jesus is so especially extra pleased with you today. They left at whatever time they left, 2.45, but we know the time stamp, 3 o'clock, they needed to be at the temple. Along the way, they make a series of decisions. Now, we're going to look at them quickly. We're going to play a game. I realize some of you, this is really messing with your idea of church. Okay, this is an echo game. We're not getting extreme here. Okay, we'll play a game called Good Decision, Bad Decision. Okay, we're going to look at each of these decisions real, real, real quick. They made, by my count, five decisions between when they left their house at 2.45 and they end up in jail. Okay. One decision led to the next, led to the next, led to the next, led to the next. And at the end of this trail, they end up in jail. And I want to see if we can find where the bad decision was that ended them in jail. So for, I'm going to give you a decision, then you get to vote with your applause. I realize some of you don't clap in church. This is a game. You get an exemption. Okay. You get to vote for a good decision when I hold up the good decision sign. If you think it's a good decision, you clap. If you think it's a bad decision when I hold up that sign, you clap. And I'm going to do is judge this scientifically, the ear choice, which it was. Let's do a practice round with some actual decisions I made this past week. And you get to vote on whether these were good decisions or bad decisions. Eating an entire apple dumpling for breakfast. Good decision. Bad decision. Good decision has it, yes. Okay. See, we're going to get along. And you're thinking, that's not breakfast food. You want to know something else I did this week? Breakfast for dinner. Good decision. 
heart is getting warm this morning. Bad decisioning. Uh, one, one brave person was like, <laughs> that's okay, that, that's fine, you're allowed, you're allowed to have that. Uh, one more, this might be too much information. When you're running late, brushing your teeth in the shower, good decision. For, for one, bad decision. Okay, uh, maybe that it was, I was asking for a friend. I was asking for a friend. That wasn't me. Um, okay, so now you're warmed up. That's, and that's good. That's the most noise I've heard you make in some time. This is good. We're on board. So let's start with decision one. Decision one, first decision they make. They make a decision rather than passing by to stop and talk to a beggar. Okay, good decision. Okay, stopping and talking to someone in need, bad decision. Okay, okay. Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate the, the voice of the sin. Listen, let's be honest. We're clapping for Peter and John, but some of you would tell your kids, don't ever stop and talk to someone who's begging. You don't know what they want. And you don't stop and talk because you don't want to engage. But that's a good church answer, so we're going to give them a good decision, right? Good decision. That's what we aspire to be, to stop and talk to beggars. So now once they stopped and talked, and you know this if you've tried this, it actually led to additional decisions that had to be made. You ever stopped and engaged a homeless person or someone who was in need and they asked for money and you stopped and you, made, you started talking it's, gonna, it's kind of like a risk, right? You don't know where this is going to go. Okay. Next decision. They decided to minister healing when they found out this person had a physical need. They decided we're going to pray for this person to be healed. Good decision? Okay. Bad decision. See, oh, see, now that's good. I'm glad I didn't hear any claps there. We'd have to preach a different message this morning. Yeah, I think so far they're two for two. They have two opportunities here. Do we pass by or do we stop and talk? They stopped and talked. And when they stopped and talked, they had to make a second decision. What do we do with what they're asking us for? And they say, you know what? The best thing we can do is minister healing. So they, they, they pray. We, you were here for these sermons. They pray. He's healed. Legs are strengthened. He begins walking, leaping, praising God. We write a great children's song right on the spot that we sing in children's church. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We're walking, leaping, praising God. And they decide now, what do we do with the beggar? Do we leave him here? Do we send him off? Or do we take him with us? Decision three, they take the beggar off the street into the temple courts along with them. Good decision? A little less sure here. It's okay. Bad decision. Okay. Yeah, I think that was a good decision. They're like, listen, you probably have never done this before. Come with us. If anybody asks us, we can explain. That led them to a fourth decision because what happens when they bring the beggar in He's carrying on, and everybody knew this dude. Everybody knew who he was, knew his story, and they had never seen him walk. They had never seen his ankles strengthened. They had never seen this before, and he's causing commotion, and they say a crowd is starting to gather. And if you know anything about Peter and crowds, they usually don't mix. Lots of questions. People are gathering around. Now they have a decision. Do we kind of fade out into the sunset and not make a seat here, scene here, or... What actually happened was Peter decided to preach the gospel and explain what happened and give credit to Jesus for it. So he made a decision to stay, face the crowd, and tell them about Jesus. Good decision? Okay. Bad decision. Okay. So, so far they're four for four. There's one more. Now as the crowd is standing there and they're, and they're, and, and, and they're going on and on and on, they actually keep preaching right up until the priests come out. And they don't flee the scene. So now the religious leaders step into the back of the lesson. And they're the ones who are supposed to be doing the teaching. 
But Peter and John continue to give their gospel message, being unashamed of Jesus. Good decision? Did I put it? Okay, good decision? Bad decision. Okay, we've gone through five decisions. And we would think if someone lands in jail, one of them is going to be this one, right? Looks like they were five for five. One good godly decision that he could be proud of and bless led to another opportunity and they made the right decision there and a godly decision third and a godly decision fourth and a godly decision fifth. And you know what happened after the fifth good decision? You know what the results were? The religious leaders and the Sadducees, the priests and the Sadducees, had their own law enforcement system. Don't have time to unpack this today, but understand the Jews had two different governments that they had to deal with at this time. They had the Romans who occupied this territory and it was part of the Roman Empire. And you had the Roman crew. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus' trial, you understand the tension between the Jewish legal system and the Roman legal system and how they had to kick Jesus back and forth to finally get someone to approve his death by crucifixion. They had to change the charges from blasphemy to treason because the Romans couldn't convict someone for blasphemy. That was a Jewish rule. But the Jews couldn't kill somebody, so they needed the, the Romans to approve it. There was this, the Romans didn't really want to deal with the Jews. They wanted the temple guard to handle everything. And so it was the temple guard under the authority of the religious leaders. You know what they did after this good decision? After they healed a guy and told people about Jesus, they didn't know what else to do. It says they were bothered for two reasons. They were, they were jealous, which is another whole message. The teachers were jealous that all the people were coming to these uneducated, uncredentialed, untrained, common Galilean men and hanging on their every word instead of coming to them. They were bothered that they were teaching and they were bothered by what they were teaching. And so not knowing what else to do, they arrested them and threw them in jail. They didn't read them their rights. We have no indication that they even told them what the charges were. But the result of five consecutive godly decisions was imprisonment and jailing. Oh, and also, many who heard what they preached believed in the number of the men in the church drew to 5,000, which by some conservative estimates represented 20% of the male population of Jerusalem. That's just the male number there. The first 3,000 number that we see in Acts chapter 2, men, women, children. Now they're just saying, listen, it's 5,000 men plus women and children. So the result of five godly decisions were the people who were making the good decisions were thrown in jail, and many of the listeners were converted and saved. What we don't see is panic. What we don't see are Peter and John wringing their hands. If anything, you're thinking, wow, what a horrible thing. They, got, they, left, for, they left for church at 2.45 and at 6 they're thrown in jail overnight because they couldn't allow the interrogators to you know, come together overnight. They threw them in jail overnight until sunrise and they weren't prepared for this. They didn't pack a go bag. They didn't have snacks there. They, didn't, they weren't prepared for this. But what we don't hear is any panic any frustration, any protest, any anger. It's almost like Peter and John were like, we didn't plan for this, but we're prepared. Now, how in the world could they do that? They must have been looking for a different payoff than we would think. Have you ever done something right and had it blow up right in your face? You did something that you know God could bless, God could honor. It was a wise choice. It was the right thing to do. 
It was the right parenting choice to make. It was the right financial decision to make. It was the right admission or confession to make, to call yourself in the car and say, you know what, I, I need to ask you forgiveness for something that I did. And you're expecting it to all go down the godly, blessable route, and it blows up in your face and goes the complete opposite direction? If I took a snapshot of your life at that moment, what would you write about that? What would you be feeling about God? What would you be feeling about yourself? Would you regret the good thing you did because of the immediate payoff that it supplied to you? Man, I went to this person for forgiveness thinking I was going to mend fences, and it ended up, and man, they just opened up another can on me, and it went a whole different direction. I did what the Bible said to do, and it didn't turn out that way. I gave sacrificially. I gave first. And man, the dryer broke, and the headliner of my car fell apart. And the roof started leaking. That was just our week this last week. But you know, like, I don't know what your week was like. And you say, man, that's not what I expected the payoff to be, the results. I invited this person to come to church with me. I shared my faith with them, thinking I'm doing a good thing, and now there's a distance there. There's an awkwardness there. They won't talk to me anymore. If you expect a payoff of immediate warm fuzzies and good vibes, and a pat on the back every time you do a good thing for God, you're going to be regularly disappointed with this Christianity thing. The reason Peter and John weren't disappointed is because of point number two. They lived boldly, and if you watch through Acts, you'll see this theme through the whole thing. People lived boldly and did the right thing and just trusted God was going to, with the results. They trusted him with the results. In fact, that's why you read all over Luke, and the Lord added to their number, and the Lord saved, and the Lord... The God, Luke always gives God the credit for the results, and he always specifies the role that people had in doing their part. The moment you think the results are up to you, you're doomed. God says the results are mine. And when you know that, you, that the win is not whether your friend comes to church, the win is that you had enough boldness to give them that opportunity, that's the win. That's the win. But if you're expecting the payoff to be, they come, they sit down front, they pray the sinner's prayer, their life has changed. That might happen. That's a great celebration. But that's up to God. Your role in it is to give them an opportunity. And Peter and John looked at this. They said, listen, we did what we were supposed to do in that moment that we didn't plan for, but we were prepared for. Now we're thrown in jail. And they understood, point number two, that God must be working on a bigger picture, and this is just part of it. And isn't the beautiful thing that God gave them overnight to calm their hearts and get ready for what lied ahead of them the next day? He gave them a little downtime. I don't know what they did in jail. Did they sing? Did they pray? Did they study? Did they prep themselves? Did they sleep? I don't know. All I know is that when Luke picks up the story the next day, in verses 4 through 11, we see nothing that you would expect. God's always working on a bigger picture. Always working on a bigger picture than what you can see. And what happens in verses 4 through 11? Peter and John are brought at daybreak, probably between 6 and 7 in the morning. In the, the Sanhedrin is convening here. Does that sound familiar to you? There's names dropped in there like Annas and Caiaphas. Have you heard those names anywhere? This is a familiar cast of characters. This scene is eerily similar to a scene we read not too long ago. Probably not too many months earlier, the last time that we read about the Sanhedrin convening. And you know who was conspiring and leading the whole thing? Two cats who were related by the name of Annas and Caiaphas. Not good dudes. Not fans of Jesus. At all. In fact, the last time we see this group getting together to interrogate somebody, it follows a very similar script. You need to know what this looked like very briefly. 
It took them from 6 p.m. till sunrise to let all people of the Sanhedrin know, hey, we got some witnesses we need to interrogate tomorrow. You know how many people were in the Sanhedrin? 71 usually. And you know what this interrogation room was like? It was 71 people sitting in a circle. And then after they're all sitting in the circle and they get their angry, intimidating face on, then they lead in the prisoners and they sit them in the middle of the circle. They are literally completely surrounded. It reminds me of that, you know, you may feel like you're surrounded, but you're really surrounded by, right? This is what Peter and John are led into. And they have two issues. And when I say they, I mean the Sadducees who had a theological objection to this idea of resurrection. And you had the priests who were jealous that anybody else but them were getting followers because of their teaching. And it's interesting that in this line of questioning, they leave the theology completely alone. And they only go after their first objection. And they ask them one question. In what name or by whose authority have you done this thing? What thing were they asking about? A healing of a crippled man. Do you know that they're actually making an admission that they can't refute in their question? They're saying a thing has historically, factually happened, and we can't object to it because you find out later that dude was right there. There was something that God did through these two men that they cannot object to, and they admit that it happened. And so they don't question what happened because they even say later, we can't do it. It's actually happened. There is a miracle. God interfered in the natural, or somebody interfered in the natural consequences. We need to figure out by whose name or by what name they're doing this. Very similar line of questioning that they went after Jesus with because there's crimes that could convict them of if they made the wrong answer here. And then... After they ask this question, you have Peter and John sitting in the middle of a circle of hostile interrogators. And they have to now answer a question that would either identify them with Jesus or they have to find some sort of peaceful negotiated middle ground. Now let me ask you a question. You've probably played this game before. If you were God, some of you play this game several times a day. If you were God, and you had 5,000-ish possible people, you could choose to stand up under hostile interrogation in this day and age. Who would you have chosen? I don't know the answer to that, but my question is, would you have picked Peter? Have you read his bio? What is his history with pressure? And sticking up for Jesus. Not a good one. Here's a guy who at one point takes on an entire army with the bold move of slicing off a joker's ear. Malchus. Right? Couldn't even like stab him in a good place. Cuts off his ear. That was brave. A few hours later, he's questioned by a few smaller groups of people and he denies even being associated with Jesus because he's terrified of what might happen if he spoke up for Jesus. And now a few months later, possibly maybe up to a year and a half later, this is the guy that God sends into a room to preach 
about Jesus. Why would he pick Peter? I'm going to answer that question in a second. But I will tell you his response is very cool and very calm because I think Peter and John understood this moment differently than you and I understand moments when it looks like a good decision blew up in our face. They understood God's bigger picture. What was his bigger picture? I will tell you uh, what, what at least some of his bigger picture was. First of all, God needed the message of the gospel to be carried to the Sanhedrin, to the Sadducees, to the priests, and to the religious rulers. He didn't want to destroy them. He wanted them to be saved. And how was he going to get the gospel to them except in an environment like this? What are you saying, Pastor? Here's what I'm saying. God's bigger picture was he did not want the apostles to see these men as their enemies. These men were their mission field. And I wonder if sometimes things blow up in your face and you're concluding that the reason it blew up in your face is that you've discovered an enemy and God's saying, that's not your enemy, that's your mission field. These aren't your enemies. These are people who need to know the gospel and you're the vehicle and these are the circumstances I'm using to create an opportunity for that message to go forward. And you say, God, they're hostile. They might not even want to hear it. And God says, it's not your decision to decide who gets to hear and who doesn't, hostile or friendly. Your job is to go into all the world and talk to people everywhere about the kingdom of God and their need of repentance. And you send them and you trust the results to me. Peter and John understood God was working on a bigger picture. And guess what? When they understood that the snapshot was just a bigger part of a bigger picture, they could relax in that moment. What if you understood every snapshot in your life can fit somehow into God's mosaic of the bigger picture, and he's not panicked because he knows how it's working out? What if you can understand that? Well, pastor, are you saying that everything in my life is good? Absolutely not. That everything that happens in my life is something that pleases God's heart? Absolutely not. But I believe in a God that can look into the good and the bad and the indifferent of our life, and He can somehow cause the sum of all those things working together, and He can draw some good and benefit out of it for us. Well, Pastor, are you saying that this is all predestined? Probably not in your definition, as I've shared with you before. I believe God knows how, I believe as Peter explained it, God knows how everything's going to work out, and He operates through the free will of man, and those two things are not mutually exclusive. They work together side by side. God knows, and He uses us, and if we wouldn't do our part, it wouldn't turn out that way, and it turns out that way because God willed it, and if He didn't will it, it wouldn't turn out that way. Those things work together side by side, just like Peter said in Acts 2. God desired for, God planned for Jesus to die on the cross, and Jesus died on the cross because evil people had it in their heart to do it, and they did it. God knew it, He planned it, and people chose it. That's how it works. Pastor, that's not satisfactory. It might not be satisfactory, but it works, and you'll have to wait till we get to heaven to unwind the rest of it. It's good enough for me. God's always working on a bigger picture. The way you would caption Peter and John's life at this moment probably isn't the same way they would caption it. You'd say, distressed, beaten down, scared, anxious, unjust, unfair treatment. They'd say, opportunity. We've been welcomed into territory that was otherwise inaccessible to us. We're the only two people God has given an audience to just preach the gospel to people who are otherwise closed to hear it. They think they're coming in for an interrogation. They came to a gospel service. Because these are not our enemies. These are our mission field. Oh, that God would change your heart to the people you've labeled as your enemies and you would see them as your mission field. Then you will extend the shelf life 
of how long you can tolerate what you think is punishment. And God is saying, I'm sending you into this environment through these circumstances as part of a bigger picture of what I'm trying to do in their life. Point number three. I've got to close probably after this one. So how was Peter able to be cool under pressure? Luke gives us the secret. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the secret. Something happened in that moment. Uh, how to, I probably won't satisfy you theologically here because there's a lot of terms we toss around. You'll have to go back and listen to some of my earlier messages, what I mean by this. Something, the Holy Spirit supplied something unique to Peter in this moment to use in speaking that was above and beyond his natural courage, that was above and beyond his natural ability to articulate, that was above and beyond his natural boldness. Because Peter was a lot of things naturally. He was bold. He was first to volunteer, first to speak up. He was impetuous. He was impressionable. He was the first one out of the boat and the last one to leave Jesus. But he was not brave. He was not cool under pressure. And yet what we see here is a brave, bold, cool, calculated, clear, respectful, tactful, non-argumentative, but I can't use that phrase, um, not wishy-washy at all. He told the truth and nothing but the truth in this moment. How did he do it? The Holy Spirit transformed him into somebody more powerful than he was in the natural why wouldn't you want a relationship with the Holy Spirit where he can supply to you in real time everything you need to be to be everything he says you can be without any of your effort, just your availability. It even says later on, they were stumped that these two ordinary men that they knew were associates of Jesus and probably remembered were not the most brave, somehow in front of them were transformed into bold, theologically deep, articulate men who obviously did not come as a result of their education. They're saying something's going on in these lives that are greater than the sum of all of their experience and they couldn't put their finger on it. Luke tells us what it is. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And Peter preaches another great gospel message and it's beautiful what he does. He says, you know, the question is, you know, under whose name or under what authority have you done this? And Peter takes their question and he flips on him. He says, oh, awesome, we're getting our charges now. You're telling us why we're arrested. Well, so you're asking us, um, by what permission have we done such a great thing to this previously crippled man? We're, we're in jail because we, we were part of this guy being able to walk. Is, are we being arrested for a good deed? Now, that must have stung them. You, what type of an evil? I mean, they're very, they're the epitome of righteousness. And these guys are a bunch of numbskulls. And they're saying, you know, what type of dark-hearted people must you be? You're obviously, so we're arrested. You're jailing us because we did this terribly dastardly thing like restoring the ability to walk to this poor crippled man. Oh, we should just take it back then. And then everything would. And so there's silence in the room. And the moment that they, but you know how he starts off? Gentlemen and respected leaders of the church. He goes into a confrontation with respect and tact. Is that how you handle things with customer service? Or when your steak isn't done right? Or when the person in front of you doesn't use their blinker in the amount of time you think they should be? And here they are in a far more dire situation where they've got the truth on their side, but they're not looking at them as enemies that need to be defeated. They're looking at them at their mission field. And they lead with respect appropriate to the environment. They weren't blowing smoke. 
They were being respectful. I want you to notice they were being tactful. They answered the question, but then they got right to the truth. He didn't rabbit trail. He didn't bring up a whole bunch of other issues. He didn't have any other agenda. Here's what he basically says. He's like, the problem isn't that we healed this guy. The problem is that you believe Jesus of Nazareth is less than who he actually says that he was. All 71 of you have got him wrong. And they're thinking, how are you connecting these two things? They're saying, we didn't do this. We did it in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Not just Jesus of Nazareth. They all knew him. What they're saying is, you don't believe he's the Christ. And they're saying that's a problem because you killed the Christ. But God raised him from the dead. You know what he's doing here that is beautiful and that needs to sink in our hearts today? God is treating Jesus much better than you did. Do you understand God treats his son much better than we do? And Jesus is appealing to them because they all believe in God and they're saying you should want to be God-like and look at how he treated his son. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. And that should terrify you because if you want to be like God, what you're guilty of is two things. Thinking of Jesus as other than he is and treating him as less than his father does. And now he's convinced everybody in the room they need to be saved. And then he goes right to You need to be saved. And you know where salvation is found? No one else but Jesus the Christ that you crucified. Beautiful gospel message. Reels them all in. How does he do this? The same guy who couldn't put two words together. The last time he's confronted about Jesus, he curses. And he runs. And he disassociates himself with Jesus. The next time, through the Holy Spirit, he's cool, calm, collected, respectful, tactful, to the point, powerful and brings them to a point of decision how can you be a person you never think you could be in your natural capabilities only through the holy spirit let me hit those last two points as we close don't misdiagnose what persecution is you can read through this story and see when they they said okay uh we don't know what to do right here so you leave while we talk and while they talk they this group can't figure out exactly what to do well we can't really tell them we can't really dispute the, the miracle because the guy's standing right over there. So obviously, watch this. I wasn't going to share this, but I'll just share this. Here's what they're saying. These guys are not simply two wackos who are adopting a platform for personal gain. There's real fruit in their life because right over there is the proof that what they're doing is at least not phony and fake and surfacy. We can't argue with the fruit of their ministry. And there is a difference between someone who says, I'm a Christian, and they say that because they're living out of a deep level of transformation in their life, and it produces fruit consistent with who they say they are, versus a person who says, well, it is advantageous for me to cling to Christian values and agenda because it will get influence from my life. And they stand on Christian things, and they speak Christian things, and they'll use some Christian values here and there, but their life doesn't match up. There's not fruit in keeping with it. One of it is an outside-in association another one is an inside out transformation and what they're saying is you can't dispute with somebody's testimony when there's fruit that's there but you can always find someone who's a hypocrite and what we see is these guys were walking the walk and even the most critical of audiences they couldn't dispute the miracle they didn't want to touch the theology but they said we need to stop them from spreading this propaganda so let's threaten them and now we see persecution 
And I wanted to talk more today about, let's not toss that word around casually. Don't misdiagnose a challenge, a trial, a confrontation, a struggle as persecution. Okay? Not everything bad that happens to you is the result of persecution. Sometimes you got yourself into it. And if you treat a headache with a tourniquet, you're going to be in bad shape. If you, there's a way you respond to persecution, but if you label everything as persecution, what's going to happen? You're going to cause a lot of damage to the kingdom of God if you take every bad thing in your life as persecution and the devil's out to get you. But there is a specific type of persecution. And the persecution is always satanic. And it's designed to do at least one of two things. To get you to stop talking about the gospel or to get you to distance yourself or renounce your faith. And our last point, I don't have time to unpack that any further today. And the last point is you can't live for without also living against. There's that famous conversation at the very end when they say, okay, we've made a decision. Uh, We can't keep you in jail. They don't really go through all the problems. They say, listen, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. We're going to let you go. Here's the deal. You just can't talk about Jesus. And they say, well, now there's a problem. You see, yes, we're citizens here, sir, but we're also citizens of God's kingdom. And you believe in obedience and we believe in obedience. You believe in the scriptures and we've shown you in the scriptures. The stone that you rejected is the head of the corner. So that's who Jesus is. But now you're asking us to disobey God and you certainly wouldn't ask us to do that. So if we have to choose between obeying God and obeying you, what they're actually saying is you guys are all being disobedient to God and you should feel bad about that because you religious people would never want to do anything that God's not in alignment with. If we have to choose between the two, we're going to take a stand. We're going to choose for the kingdom of God and against your kingdom. And I will tell you, you simply cannot go far living for God until you find out what you're also living against. Okay? It's part of what goes along. Worship team, come join me. Let me pray for you. I always want to give an opportunity for anybody who has not received the free gift of salvation to do that this morning. And in this moment that we have just before we, we go our, our separate ways today, I do want to just let you know if you don't know already, Jesus loves you with a kind of love that you, even if you know him well, it's hard to understand. No matter how much you think he loves you, he loves you more. He wants to be more than enough for you. And he wants to have the kind of relationship with you that he had with Peter and John. That he has with all the heroes you read in the Bible. He just, he wants to know you. He wants to be in you. He wants to be with you. He wants to lift off of you the stains of your sin. And he wants to extend you the free gift of salvation and mercy and grace. And that happens through your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans that the way we go about establishing a relationship with God is through Jesus. And the way that that happens is we make a confession with our own mouth that we believe Jesus Christ is not just the man, Jesus of Nazareth. We believe he's the Lord. And that there's a deep belief in the, in, in the fact of his resurrection in our heart, that we truly deeply believe that Jesus was everything he says that he was and he capped it off with being raised from the dead. We believe that if we confess our sins, to God. He's faithful and he's just and he's going to forgive immediately. Your sins are forgiven. And not only are they forgiven, he will cleanse you of the stain of the accumulation of all that righteousness. Something that a dentist or a heart surgeon could never do. Friend, if that is something that you know you're missing in your life, 
Let me just lead you into how to establishing that relationship with God this morning. It's a simple prayer of confession. I know it sounds very simple. We, we define it as the ABCs because it is simple. We teach this to our kids, our youth here. Admit, believe, choose, ABC. You admit our own sinfulness. Just like the Sanhedrin, they, Peter and John were trying to show them, you need saving. They didn't think they did. They thought they were right with God, but he had to show them, you're not treating Jesus the way God does. You're treating him as less than who he says he is, and that makes us guilty of sinning against him. We have to come to that realization. You have to admit you need a Savior before you'll cling to one. B, we have to believe. We have to believe Jesus is who he says that he is and that he raised from the dead. And C, we have to choose. We have to choose entering God's kingdom and bowing our knee to his kingship. We have to choose him as our Lord. We choose to surrender. You cannot have him as your Savior without also having him as your Lord. It doesn't work that way. If you can trust him enough to love you enough to save you, you can trust him enough to be your king. If you're ready for that, here's that simple prayer. You can pray this right where you are right now. Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I confess my belief in you. You are sinless. You died an innocent death on the cross in my place. That's what I deserved, and you didn't. You got what was undeserved. Now, I receive what's undeserved, and that is grace. Another chance, being saved, being clean. I believe you rose from the dead, and I believe you're alive today. I receive your forgiveness for my sins, and I welcome you to clean me up. I invite you to come and live not just around me or above me. I invite you to come and live inside of me through your Holy Spirit. Take all of me. And I choose you as my Lord. I choose you as my Savior. I will follow you. In your name I pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, all of us just ask your help today to write a more accurate caption for the snapshot of where we sit today that reflects a better understanding and a confidence and a peace in the bigger picture you're working on in our lives. And Holy Spirit, continue to transform us into the men, the women, that we can only be in you so that we can boldly talk to people everywhere about the truth of the kingdom of God, all the while trusting the results to you. May we see some of the fruit of that this week and also next Sunday at Friends and Family Day. In your mighty name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.